in this edition of Hoopsology. Matt Thomas and Justin Goodrum welcome the author of Game of Edges, The Analytics Revolution and the Future of Professional Sports, Bruce Schoenfeld. Bruce provides great insight as to why analytics are vital to the future of sports and how analytics has affected the basketball world. This is an awesome chat. Bruce has great insight as to how analytics has not only affected what happens on the court, but off the court as well. You don't want to miss this chat. Please email your questions to hoopsologypod.com and follow us on all social media platforms for our latest content. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel. We are a proud member of Underdog Podcast. And now, Bruce Schoenfeld. He is the author of Game of Edges, The Analytics Revolution and the Future of Professional Sports. We welcome Bruce Schoenfeld onto Hoopsology. Welcome, Bruce. Thanks, Justin. I'm happy to be here. And happy to have you on. And with Matt and I, we, we are a basketball-focused podcast, but we also delve into different um, aspects of basketball that are evolving on a daily basis. So we're happy to have you on and delve into this subject. Um, we have a lot of authors on our show. We usually start out with um, just the motivations and the origins of this book because it's truly fascinating. Well, thanks so much. You know, the origins are actually about three decades long, and they are in the um, the shift that I began to perceive as I reported a bunch of stories along the way in the way that sports franchises were, were being owned and run. Um, basically, the phrase that I use is the professionalization of professional sports. Um, and what I mean by that is not so long ago, you know, the end of the 90s, sports teams were still kind of toys for rich people. And they were, you know, when you got to a certain time in life, you bought a sports team, just like you might buy a beachfront home or a, an art collection or whatever. Um, that was crystallized for me when um, I was writing about Bob Tisch, who uh, owned half of the New York Giants football team. And he bought them, he bought half of it um, for $75 million. And we were standing on the sidelines watching practice. And he said, you know, I don't care if they never make money. I don't care about that. I'm going to pretend I never had that 75 million, you know, which, okay. I, I, I wasn't in that position, but, but, you know, the golden state warriors today are worth five and a half, six billion dollars, And nobody, you know, I don't care how rich you are. You know, Joe Lacob is not going to pretend he didn't have that 6 billion. You know, it's, it's the amount of money that's, that is now um, that these franchises are now worth and the, um, and the, uh, the the owners that own them are people who are um, they got rich not in manufacturing but mostly in finance in in the you know in the way that people get rich in 21st century America they are uh, venture capitalists or private equity or they run a fund and they use these kind of metrics in their regular business life every day in how they how they want their companies they've invested in to be run so when they own a basketball team. Um, whether it's Josh Harris or Wes Edens or Joe Lacob or or um, uh, Robert Perra or any of these guys, they uh, they say, well, then why wouldn't we use the same things that we know work in in uh, in other areas? Why wouldn't we use that for our basketball team? That's true on the court and it's true off the court. With the evolution of you know more just I, lack of a better phrase this richer people getting into owning these teams do you think the fan experience has been hurt or do you think it's been helped um, because of this well everything about this is kind of ambiguous there's on the one hand on the other hand uh you know certainly the fan experience is better in a lot of different ways 
we see an optimized version of basketball. We see basketball. Uh, it's fun to know that, hey, the way we were doing this for years and years isn't the best way. Here's a better way. Uh, you know, it happened in baseball first and, and probably uh, right after that, when Daryl Morey started in Boston, um, it happened in basketball. Um, the fan experience in terms of the arena and, you know, the food and the interaction with the with the team is so much better. Uh, when I first started going to sports events, basically teams would would kind of interact with their customers by by saying, okay, it's the preseason, we're ready to sell tickets. And that was essentially it. And now <laughs> you can, you can, you know, if you guys wanted to have your, your, um, Justin, if you wanted to have a huge party and rent out the floor at ball arena, you could probably do it. You know, yeah. if you want, I mean, just the interaction, the, 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 it's so much more integrated and user-friendly, but it's come as a price at a price. And, you know, that, I think hits home to me when I go on the road and I, I uh, see a game last year, I saw a game in Atlanta, saw a Hawks game. And, and it, it was striking that the music and the presentation were basically exactly the same as they are in Denver, which is my home market or um, in new Orleans where I'd seen a game not long before, or uh, it, in, at the Staples center where I seen the Clippers not long before best practices if there's a best way to do something on the court or off the court it, and everyone's doing it the best way, it basically means everyone's doing it the same way. And, you know, whether that means the same playlist or the, running the same offense or whatever, if things are optimized, they're pretty homogenous. And that's not much fun. I'm curious, too. I mean, it, it would make sense that, you know, these, these new age owners coming into this, as, as you mentioned earlier, it would make sense that they follow through with their ownership using those same best practices you were just mentioning. Do you think, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, but do you think that, and maybe it's different in, in different sports, but do you think that also equates to better competition and a better product? I mean, you mentioned the, the homogenous aspect there, which, you know, you could certainly argue makes for less entertainment, but in terms of the like athletic competition across the sports, how do you see that impacted? You know, I think athletic competition, well, let me say this, uh, the NBA is a little different than other leagues, but one thing that analytics did on the court was it gave teams in smaller markets that with, with less funding a chance to compete. Now the NBA has done a great job, the best job of any league um, in keeping its the league competitive, regardless of market size, when you have really the dominant uh, over the last twenty years, uh, the sort of the 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 one dominant um, you wouldn't call it a dynasty, but the the team that has succeeded more often than any other is San Antonio. I mean, when that when 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 that team is in a market that small, something's going right. Um, but 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 as but as when teams embraced analytics uh, selectively. Some teams embraced it a lot and other teams embraced it a little. It, it created a point of difference that was a lot of fun. And, and you saw that um, with certain trades, with certain uh, strategies that teams had, draft strategies. You say, wow, why are they drafting him? Or why are they going to get that guy? Well, they had some things planned. And you saw very, many different styles of play. But as analytics on the court began to become sort of standard throughout the league and everybody was getting the same data. Now you didn't have that point of difference anymore. So in sports like baseball and, and, um, and soccer, where 
there is no salary cap. Um, you know, when only the hungry small market cheap teams were doing this, it was a way for them to counteract the advantage of the big checkbook. Um, the NBA, that isn't so much the case. And, and I, I think that the level of competition has been exciting. What I'm not sure about is whether this style of play, this kick it out to the to the to the arc, um, is the most exciting way to play basketball. And you know, I came of age as a as a basketball player and as a fan um, in an era of individual performance. And you know, things happened around the rim that were balletic and artful and exciting. Uh, it took me a while to get used to the idea of seeing a guy drive, you know, for an open layup. And at the first sign of someone taking a step toward him, he'd find somebody on the perimeter and kick it out to him. And mm-hmm. hey, I get the math. You know, I, I get that that three is bigger than two. And if you can hit, you know, anything close to forty percent of your threes, uh, you got to hit an awful lot of twos to make up to up for that. At the same time, I, you know, not sure I want to watch that quite as much as watching. Um, you know, the dynamic soaring above the rim game um, of the 80s and 90s and, and and early 2000s. Yeah, with you there and also kind of miss sort of like the chess match that was post-play and, and strategies that you had there, I think yeah. is something we're lacking. I uh, want to ask for the NBA, I guess, initially, and then more broadly, just from what you've seen since you cover multiple sports in, in your book here, are there holdouts on analytics anywhere? Is it, is it pretty much universal? Where are we in terms of the NBA from what you've seen and then other sports is, are there sports that are dragging behind more than others when it comes to analytics? Yeah, there's some sports dragging behind and there's some teams dragging behind in each sport. I would say mm-hmm. the whole the whole playing field is lifted. The, the floor is much higher than it was in terms of analytics, even five years ago. Um, every team at least pays lip service to it. They have a head of analytics. They have a staff. The trick is to, is to, is to find a coach who can be a conduit to the players. And that in the NBA is the hardest because, you know, as you know, you know, NBA players are a strong-willed bunch and unlike, let's say, the NFL, which is a more military mentality, hey, here's what you're doing. Don't worry about it. You don't even need to know what the other guys are doing. This is your job. You know, baseball, somewhere in between. The NBA, these guys know that they have the advantage, that if they've uh, achieved anything in the sport, there'll be a place for them, whether it's their relations with sponsors, where they kind of now um, guide the relationship in a way that never was the case with, with you know, even, even Michael Jordan's era or on the court, it's hard to get them to do something that they don't think is in their best interest. So you need a coach who's a particularly good communicator. And the ones who were able to do it in places like Memphis, for example, um, or Philly, um, you see a deeper penetration of, of analytics. But analytics means a lot of things. Analytics is basically just accumulating data and analyzing it. And analytics has changed the way that players are scouted. And one thing that's happening now, and I know it's happening in baseball, and I have a feeling it's happening in the NBA, though I haven't, uh, I haven't done a story that has gotten me out to talk to people about it. Teams are looking at players who have some obvious flaws in their game. And they're saying, okay, we see this guy, and these are his numbers. And he does a couple things really well. 
if we get him, we can find a way to adapt him to what we do and have him not do those things he doesn't do well or change how he does them and using using our high speed cameras using our our you know our techie stuff we can show him here's a better way to do it in baseball it's as simple as saying here's a guy with four pitches and wow we see from the data he's throwing that third and fourth best pitch way too often hey come over you know we'll we'll trade for you only throw your fastball and your changeup i don't care how many other pitches you have they're no good just do those in basketball there's a, you know i think there's some similar cognates there things that you want guys to do because they're good at them. And now the data is so advanced and the, and the stat cast system is, is able to really um, track players on, on the court in a way that really um, unearths exactly what they're doing. And you may say to a guy, you know, you've got a left hand, you've got a right hand, you have this, you have that. This is the play we want you to make. You're going to play 12 to 18 minutes a game and and here's how here's what we want you to do and all that other stuff we know you can do but we don't want you to do it because you're not vis-a-vis the league average you don't give us an edge there you're not that good at that so so i do think that's the case in terms of the wide adoption of analytics in terms of sports you know clearly football is the laggard um in which is unusual you'd think hockey and soccer because they're and bad like basketball Mm -hmm. there aren't discrete plays like there are in baseball and football but football, it's interesting to note, 16 of the 32 teams are owned by owners who inherited the teams or were given the teams from family members. So they weren't out there uh, working with 100 companies at a time like Joe Lacob was, for example. Um, they, For them, best practices may just be the way dad and granddad did it with the Lions or the Cardinals or the Bears or the Bengals, because those are the only jobs they've ever known. So they're a little bit behind. Not to say none of those teams are doing it. I think they do understand that um, that there's a necessity, but I'm not sure they understand that it needs it needs to be uh, analytics need to be in the DNA of your organization. You need to be able from top to bottom to say this is how we do things, and uh, a lot of teams just aren't there yet. Or almost all baseball teams are now. The vast majority of basketball teams are now, and it goes down from there. In your research, what have you found in terms of individual sports? So um, tennis, combat sports, Olympic sports, in terms of how they're using analytics, um, is that different than team sports? You know, my book was really about sports teams and sports teams owners. So I didn't get into that at all. Um, I have a feeling there's a wide range, but I'm interested in the evolution of the franchises um on and off the field and you know some of the things joe lacob has done with analytics and just with with his um vision of what an nba team should look like off the court are as radical and as interesting as anything anyone's done on the court and that also is analytics and it's changed the nature of uh you know he had the famous quote in a, in a magazine article that i wrote um we're light years ahead of everyone else in the nba and everybody blew up when they saw that. And his, you know, they, his his nickname is Buzz Lightyear. You know, to this day because of that. <laughs> um, and and and, uh, but 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 he was right. They were light years ahead. Other teams are catching up now, but they do things differently. Lately, uh, Ryan Smith of the Jazz is doing something differently. He perceives social activism as potentially 
uh, not just a cause for good in the community, which is which is a big focus of his, but uh, a potential advantage for his team. And he's well aware that he lives in, uh, he owns a team in a market that is pretty homogenous. It's basically white. It's basically, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's heavily Mormon. Um, it's a lot of people who are from there and look the same. And uh, it hasn't always been the most enticing place for an NBA free agent to go. And he believes that if he can, um, if he can make his franchise a force for good in the community and a force that will, um, even though it's a conservative state, he's embraced some liberal causes, um, such as giving a, 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 a high school student of color a scholarship to, with every game that the Jazz wins, they give a scholarship to a high school, a local high school student of color to one of the, uh, to a Utah university, roundly criticized by a lot of conservatives in Utah. But, when I was there and talked to players and coaches, they said, hey, this inspires us. Sometimes in the NBA, you know, it's hard to remember what you're there for. The games blur together and it's just another day out playing basketball. And, and I had a couple of players say to me, we know down the stretch, if we win this game, some kids going to college. And that that really and, you know, his and his vision also is let's make this a better place for all the stakeholders, for the players, their families that, you know, and 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 in doing that will help the community and will help the jazz. And what's interesting about that is his professional career is more grounded in analytics than basically anyone ever. He he created Qualtrics, which is that company that when you know when you fly United Airlines before you're at the baggage claim, you get an email saying, "Let us know how we did. What can be better? What can be worse?" That's all him. It's all data gathering data and analyzing it. So for somebody so rooted in that to feel like, hey, social justice is an area of opportunity for an NBA team, that's fascinating. Um, I want to ask with basketball, it is, I think, a more of a free-form game compared to other sports, um, a lot more improvisation. Um, how is that in either um, – I guess, working together with analytics or is there a conflict between kind of the free flow and just, you know, doing things on the fly with basketball compared to analytics? Because I feel like that's more in conflict with each other in basketball compared to other sports. Well, analytics starts with player procurement. When when Daryl Morey got to the Celtics, when Wick Grosvick bought the Celtics uh, and Steve Paliuka bought the Celtics and Daryl was working there. Uh, he'd been part of the of the um, of the Parthenon EY team that helped helped do that deal for them to uh, to acquire the Celtics. He stayed on and started working for them on the business side. And when Danny Ainge became general manager way back then, 2003, he said, hey, can I split my time with the basketball side? And it became very clear to him right away. The single most helpful thing he could do involved player acquisition, involved the draft and trades. How can I find players out there who are undervalued so that if we have the 20th pick in the draft, we're going to get someone who's better than the guy who's fifth. So that's the first thing. That's analytics. That first year, it got them Ray John Rondo, for example. He then moved to Houston where he identified, and you're right, basketball is a free-form game, but it's a series of matchups, a series of set pieces, a series of patterns. So at that time, uh, they had Yao Ming, who was taking up, along with Tracy McGrady, a massive chunk of the salary cap. Yao Ming had advantages and disadvantages. 
Um, the advantage was, well, the disadvantage was you could hardly get the ball to him. He, he, the pass had to be to his hands at a specific height. He couldn't, he couldn't catch a bounce pass. He couldn't move. There's a million things he couldn't do. And he was, it was a huge limitation, but the good, the good part was if you got him the ball within radius of the basket, he would score 80, 90% of the time from a certain place, he would score. So what do you do analytically? How do you take that situation and create an opportunity? And for Maury, it was, we have to find a player who is uniquely qualified to pass the ball so accurately that it'll go exactly where it needs to go. He also needs to be a player who, if the defense collapses on Yao, because it was no secret what they were trying to do, if the defense collapses, he's got to be open on the perimeter to hit a three. How do you find that, that, that one guy, you know? And that was... Uh, you know, that was a focus for him. And by the way, um, that one guy also has to be good on defense. Yeah, in fact, he needs to excel on defense to fit all everything they need to do. As it happened, there was a guy playing in Memphis who was exactly that player. And Daryl Morey traded for him, Shane Battier. And Shane Battier, when that trade was made, everybody said, what in the world? Why would you trade for this guy? He doesn't score. He, you know, he, he, he shoots well when he's open, but he's not a scorer. He's not fast. He's limited in so many ways. But for that team, Daryl knew, based on the data, this was exactly the guy they needed. So, you know, that was, that was early days, right? That was 2005. But since then, it's evolved to a point where those transactions happen all the time. Those draft picks happen all the time. And, and it's hard to remember. And, and, you know, and Justin, you, with all due respect, you're, you, you're young looking. The draft used to be the Wild West. You'd be sitting there in those war rooms in the 80s and 90s, and you'd be about to draft a guy. And somebody, for some random reason, would just say, well, we like the, I saw this guy score the other day. Remember the tournament? He scored 30 uh, let's go with him. All right. And they, you know, it was, everything was done on feel and, and there was very little research. The research that they did to, to, uh, for their, for their draft picks is probably, was probably less complete than you do in your daily life, watching basketball. You know more about players in college now than the executives of NBA teams in the nineties. And so that has hugely evolved and it happens behind the scenes, and all you see is the end result. Oh, they picked this guy. Okay. But there are a million little reasons added up on why that guy was the right guy for that team. Bruce, I got to say, as a as a Rockets fan, I'm loving the Yao Ming example that you gave there. <laughs> I want to um, go back to what you kind of what you had mentioned with the Utah Jazz. And, and I think um, a, a big part of that is is building culture. In examples that you researched and, and what you've seen through visiting all these different teams and sports, where have you seen, is there sort of like a line where analytics can go too far? Uh, maybe it becomes too impersonal or, or something along those lines. Um, ha have you seen, you know, both the good and bad examples? And, and if you have seen bad examples, I mean, where does it tend to go bad? What are some of the, I guess, faults that organizations can have with analytics? Yeah, well, then the, the prime example of that is not a basketball example, if that's all right. 
Uh, sure. It's the Houston, it's the Houston Astros. Um, mm. And they have, um, uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a book I read recently, it said, um, if you want to, uh, uh, if you want to get it to imagine what it would be like if McKinsey, the consultants McKinsey, ran a baseball team, you don't have to imagine it's the Houston Astros. <laughs> they're so, they're so impersonal. They're so bottom line oriented. Um, they, they fire scouts, they reshape things, they do things based on what the numbers say to such extent that they've become the black hole. Nobody wants to work there. Nobody wants to be involved with them. Uh, that the, the the cheating scandal was not so much a cause, but a symptom of this sort of win at all costs, mm. optimize, maximize mentality. Um, at the same time, if you're a Houston Astros fan, you probably can't help noticing that they keep winning. So yeah. for the moment, at least, taking analytics too far and creating this really impersonal, uh, cold corporate atmosphere is definitely an issue and it's talked about by people inside baseball certainly um but as long as it keeps paying off in terms of wins um who i i'm not i'm not uh confident that other teams aren't going to copy that um because another aspect of this evolution of sports franchises when your team is worth a couple million dollars uh again you know it's you want them to do well, but there's maybe other parts of this that are equally important. You know, for Donald Sterling of the Clippers, he wanted to be able to boast at the country club, I own a basketball team. Hey, come see my Clippers. I'll get you into my box. And, you know, when the team's worth a, a few billion dollars, there's no fooling around. You have to treat it with the um, with the almost sort of a, a cold-hearted mentality um, of anything worth a billion dollars because uh, or five billion four billion because uh, there are investors involved who are um you know who are are uh, who expect a, r a rate on return and you know the rate on return often is predicated on winning there are other ways to make money but winning's a pretty good way a pretty a pretty secure way if you win a couple world series you win a couple nba titles your team's going to do better so yeah i mean yeah teams go too far they rely too much on analytics their culture becomes maybe a little too numbers oriented, but, uh, you know, I'm not sure that I, I I'm, I'm not sure there's going to be less of that. And I'm concerned there may be more. Last question. What are the, the consequences of that? So if we're seeing other teams mimic the Houston Astros model and other sports, do you think that will have a negative effect on the leagues overall that will ultimately affect their business down the line? Well, I do think that's a great way to end Justin. Because I do think that um, there's a uh, there's a short term gain to be made from optimizing these um, optimizing professional sports. Let me close with this example: um, the embrace of gambling yeah. in 2018 2019 uh, happened in large measure because Ted Leonsis and other owners were convinced that they had reached a peak of money they were going to get from television contracts. Television viewers were going down. The uh, fewer and fewer people were, were, were getting cable TV when they moved somewhere. They, they, you know, they, I think it's 40% of America now doesn't have a, a, a cable link. They needed money to come from somewhere. Uh, and as Adam Silver explained to me, if we can get 
um, the people who are already watching, but the billion people around the world that watch an NBA game, if we can get them to watch it 10 minutes longer, that's the greatest growth we can find, much more than any other way we can grow, much more than opening up India or Brazil or whatever. Just get the people that are already fans to watch a little longer. Well, how do you do that? If you can get people to bet it's 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 six it, it's it's eighty to fifty eight at the end of three quarters. Hey, let's turn off the game. No, no, wait. I, I just made a bet on who's going to win the fourth quarter. Well, now it's a brand new game, and as I as I say, what used to be garbage time becomes crunch time, right? The problem with that is you get less and less aligned as a fan from the players. The players are trying to do one thing. You're rooting for them to do something else. Now, who wins the fourth quarter? You know, the Lakers are up 80 to 58 on the Jazz. The Lakers just want to get out the door with the win. They don't care. Maybe they want to get some guys into the rotation they're not normally going to get in. So they're they're doing something un, unlike what you want. Now, that's we've had that for years with football and basketball point spreads, right? But the bets are getting increasingly baroque. How many curveballs are going to be thrown this inning? How many, you know, whatever it is, who's going to, who's going to, uh, uh, who's going to score the next goal or, um, whatever i mean there's so many things you can bet now and the people who are betting these in many cases they don't even care who wins the game and you see that now with fantasy you have this collection of players you're watching a game because your guy is playing but you have no connection with a team the question is over time 10 15 years these people who are basketball fans let's say but aren't really basketball fans. They're fans of this unique, they're fans of themselves, of the action that they have uh, uh, on a particular game. As as my generation moves on, dies off, and, and the younger generations come in, are they going to have that same affection, that same link to teams that we did when we were rooting for what the players were rooting for? You know, I'm a Red Sox fan. I hope they win, you know? I, I don't have a bet on somebody and, you know, I, I just want this guy to hit the next home run. No, I'm rooting for the team. So, so I think your point is, is, is correct, Justin, that there is a danger that the short-term optimization, let's bring in the most money now, you run the risk of undermining the connection, the special connection that we have with sports that we don't have with other companies. We don't have with all those hundred other companies Joe Lacob was working with. We only have it with the Warriors. I'll close by just saying, he talks about his team as a mutual fund of interests. It's content, it's entertainment, it's it's catering, it's hospitality, it's fashion, it's real estate. It's it's like any it's like a mutual fund, but unlike mutual funds, people pay money to wear a shirt with with warriors on it, right? That's it's like oh my gosh, not only is it does it have all these different uh, revenue streams, but there's this fanatic. A, a sense of affiliation with the customers, with the fans. If you lose that, now it's just another investment. And I think that's a real risk. And I'm not sure these owners appreciate that yet. Hopefully, if they read my book, Game of Edges, they will understand and appreciate it. Bruce, this has been a fantastic chat. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please let our audience know where they can find you on social media, where they can pick up the book, any other products you're working on as well. Thanks so much, Justin. I'm, I'm on Twitter at Bruce Schoenfeld, B-R-U-C-E-S-C-H-O-E-N-F-E-L-D. Uh, Game of Edges is out as we speak, out tomorrow, which is June 6th. Um, and we'll, you, you can find it at any bookstore. And I'm a, a frequent contributor to the New York Times Magazine uh, and, and have written a bunch of basketball stories in the past few years. I also write a lot for ESPN, ESPN FC, 
um, almost exclusively exclusively these days on international soccer. So there you go, and Sports Business Journal too. If you if you're if you're in that uh, that demographic segment that can afford the subscription, I heartily recommend it. Fantastic. Thanks, Bruce, very much. Thanks, you guys.